I got 6.30 by my watch, and so we're gonna get rolling. <clears throat> and whoever, uh, whoever shows up late, well then they just miss out. So let me pray for us, and then uh, we're gonna get rolling with uh, week five. So let's pray. Father, I thank you that we are able again to gather together to be able to talk about your word, to be able to discuss um, major themes and um, historical acts that we see in the Old Testament. And God, I pray that you would give us clarity of thought as we are working through basically the rest of Exodus tonight. And uh, God, I pray that this would be uh, honoring to you and beneficial for us. And if you would, just take a moment and pray for me that the things that I say would be accurate, they would be helpful, they would be clear, and uh, that they would be... Um, useful in some way for us. Pray that for me if you wouldn't mind. Father, I thank you for the time that I've had to be able to prepare and uh, conversations with other pastors and um, just uh, being in your word and in prayer. God, I just thank you for that. And I pray that this beneficial time for me would uh, spill over and it would be beneficial for all of us. And God, I pray that it would be clear and accurate and all those things that we um, always ask for because ultimately we need your Holy Spirit to give us clarity of thought and to be able to be able to actually comprehend what it is that you have once for all delivered to the saints. And so, Father, we give you this time and we pray that it will be what you need it to be. And we ask it in your son's name. Amen. All right. So we are in week five of our storyline um, series where we're walking through the Old Testament. And so let me give us a quick recap of where we were last session. Um, just want to remind you, if you missed one, just watch it online. We've got the YouTube uh, videos um, on our YouTube channel um, for video. And if you're just doing audio only, you can do it through Spotify. We've got all the slides online. You can get everything you need. So last week, basically what we did is we covered Exodus 1 through Exodus 11. Basically, we only slowed down um, uh, for a couple of, of, of chapters and really chapters one, two and three were where we focused. Um, but this is where we kind of come to this point of saying that uh, we see the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent as a theme that is going to keep coming over and over again. Right. Um, we saw that with even Pharaoh with his headdress that he wears it actually has like a big old snake on it. And that how um, there is this reversal where Eve is deceived by the serpent in Genesis 3. But in Exodus 2, it's these women who are deceiving the serpent, who is Pharaoh. And so we can kind of see those themes playing off of each other. Go listen to that. Then we talked about how Moses' life will mirror the experience of Israel and then what they are going to experience in um, the future. And we named, like, I think it was nine things, right? And you can go back and listen to see how beat for beat in many ways Moses' life is preparing us for what's going to happen for the rest of Exodus. And then what we talked about was how God's deliverance is unparalleled, and we're really going to see that tonight. And we talked about the irony that's all throughout chapters 1 and 2 of Exodus. Go check all that stuff out. Any questions? Didn't think so. All right, so this is where we are heading for the rest of tonight. We are basically going to pick up in chapter 11, which is where God tells Moses to warn Pharaoh of the final plague that is coming, and then we talk about the Passover. Um, and then we're going to see 
the, the flight from Egypt. We're going to see the actual exodus that happens from there. They're going to cross the Red Sea in chapter 14. They're going to sing in chapter 15. And then we're going to skip ahead basically to chapters 19 and 20 of Exodus, which is where we see the covenant coming from God to Israel as a whole. Um, but we're actually going to take like three full slides to explain that. So it doesn't look like a whole lot up there, but we're basically going to cover three chapters in depth. And then we're going to cover like 20 in a flash. Okay, and then whenever we talk about that 20 in a flash, we're actually talking more like 54. Um, you'll see why here in just a bit. And then we're gonna talk about uh, just some final observations from there. Yeah? All right, hopefully you got your running shoes on. Here we go. Let's look in chapter 11. Let's pick it up in chapter 11, verse one. And the Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more and I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. And then afterward, he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. So what we see here is that Moses is told by God, you need to go tell Pharaoh, we got one more in the chamber and it's for you. We've got nine of these other plagues that were really attacking uh, Pharaoh's control over this balance that he had in Egypt. And every one of those is just chipping away, chipping away, chipping away at Pharaoh's control. And then this 10th one is clearly indicating that he has zero control to begin with. Doesn't matter who you are, everyone is going to be affected by this 10th plague, right? And that 10th plague, we'll get into here in a bit. This is the one that we are the most familiar with, where the angel of death will come um, in the middle of the night, and then if you don't have blood on the doorpost, your firstborn will die. That's it. That's the end of the plague, except it happens to everyone, right? It, it sounds like it's just kind of a really simplistic, straightforward thing, but the reason it's really important is because what happens with the instructions that are given to Israel about the Passover, right? And so this is where the name for Passover comes from. It means that the angel of death would pass over, would go beyond, would not touch your house, and it would pass over and would just go to the next one. If there was blood on that door, he would go to the next one, right? Are you tracking with that? That's literally where the name comes from. But we've got to see those two things working in tandem to see that like in many ways this 10th plague is like the culmination of all the other plagues, but it's also quite unique. It's very different, right? Because in all the other plagues, we see that there was um, this formulation that the Egyptian cattle and the Egyptian people, they were the ones who were suffering these blights, but Israel was spared. And here, it seems as though if Israel doesn't follow the instructions for the Passover, they suffer the same fate. Okay, that's an indicator of where we're heading for the rest of the chapter. So what we see from the Passover instructions, we're going to look at basically chapter 12. This is where all this stuff is going to flow out from us. Let's take a look at that. Number one, on the 10th day of the month, go get you a lamb that is spotless and put that joker in your house. Live with this thing, right? Now, I don't think this is the language of like, hey, make this little lamb like your pet and like get really affectionate towards it. I think there's a really practical element of like, make sure this thing is spotless and without blemish, how are you gonna do that? Watch it for like half a week. If it gets sick on you, you can't use it, right? If your household is too small and y'all can't afford it, then get with your neighbor and between the two of you, y'all come together, you do the same thing. You get you a lamb and you identify with it. This is one of those really holy moments that we see in the Old Testament is with Passover and the meal that's supposed to be remembered forever. And the 
it begins with this identification of this is our family and this is the sacrifice. This is later going to be mirrored in Leviticus chapter 16 and 17 whenever Moses is going to talk about Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, right? That literally was like three days ago, two days ago for us, right? Yom Kippur was earlier this week. And on Yom Kippur, that's where they have the scapegoat that they would send off and then they had the other animal that they would sacrifice. One of the things that the priest would do is would, he would put his hands on that goat and would confess the sins of the nation before he kicked that joker out in the wilderness to go die out in the wilderness. The whole point here of having this animal in your house for four days is that you would get acquainted with, this is what is going to save me. Come now, right? Do you see what's happening here? Now that theme is being set up for what's going to happen at Yom Kippur and how we need to identify with our need for a Savior as well. We'll see some more of that here in a second. After you get this lamb, after four days, when it comes time to do it, slaughter the animal and you put some of the door uh, blood across the top of the door and across the doorposts. You paint it. There's actually like a brush made out of hyssop. You dip it in a, a bowl for, full of the blood and then you paint it on the door, right? And this identification of this animal that was in our house is now protecting our house, as it were, yeah? And then what they're supposed to do with this animal is they're supposed to eat it after they roast it. Specifically is said here in verse 9 of chapter 12, don't boil it and eat it the right way. Later in Deuteronomy, it's going to have a little bit of a different instruction. And then even later in the Old Testament, when Josiah is trying to reconcile some of the instructions that we see from Deuteronomy 12, or excuse me, Exodus chapter 12, and then Deuteronomy, he actually uses like an entirely new word to describe you got to eat the whole thing the right way is basically what he's trying to get at. Point is, there's clear prescription of you were to eat this animal and you're not supposed to leave any other parts of it. It's, there's a really right way to do it. Yeah, that's, that's what's critical for us to see right here. You can look at that in verse 6 and 7 and 8. Then after they are eating this lamb, they're supposed to be eating unleavened bread during this meal as well. Eventually we're going to see this institution, this inauguration of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, and it kind of culminates with the Passover, that they're not supposed to have any uh, bread with leaven in it, with no yeast in it. Um, we're going to see that practically part of the reason for that is you're not going to have time to let that junk rise, right? Because the next thing that he says after you're eating this, you need to have your shoes and your belt on. Get your hand on your stick because y'all are about to leave. As soon as y'all are done and as soon as I come through, you're leaving Egypt. Israel takes no long-term provisions when they leave, including food, right? And so they're given basically like this shelf-stable kind of dough that's going to just kind of sit there, but like it's not going to rise because it doesn't have leaven in it. There's actually a whole lot of more symbolic uh, meaning that's in there that we're going to kind of skip over for tonight. But there's practical things that are in play as well as to why unleavened bread, okay? Unleavened bread, roast the lamb, eat it, don't leave anything in the morning, do it the right way, yeah? And then you can see in chapter 12, verses 24 and 25, what Moses tells them is that you are to observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. You are supposed to keep doing this. This is going to be a memorial meal. And when you come into the land that the Lord is going to give you, as He promised, you're going to keep doing this. Right? Does that make sense? So this isn't just a thing that is kind of like, oh, this kind of weird thing we did that one time in Egypt. No, no, no. This is something they're supposed to do forever to remember how God has delivered them. Yeah? Cool? All right, and then the last thing that we see 
An angel of death comes. Look in chapter 12. Let's pick it up in verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all of the firstborn of the livestock. Everybody got affected. Unless there was blood, right? If there is this atoning, there is this covering, and if the angel of death would pass over, right? So this is how we see the culmination of all those signs that Moses was told by God, do every single one of them. Don't skip anything. There's been other signs that Moses was given that Egypt's uh, sorcerers, wise men, whatever they are, they kind of like reproduced. Can't reproduce this one. This is like the one bombastic show of force that leaves no question whatsoever that God is absolutely in control and Pharaoh is not. And how do I know? Pharaoh's son is dead. Yeah? All right. Any questions about this final plague and the Passover? All right. So... After this happens, let's pick it up there in chapter 12, verse 33. The Egyptians, well, actually, let's pick it up in verse, uh, uh, verse 31. So this is Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron at night, and he said, Get up, go out among my people, both you and your people of Israel, and go serve the Lord, which was the request the whole time. Let us go and serve the Lord. Let us go. Let us go. Right? No, no, no. Okay, fine. You can go serve the Lord. As you have said, take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on that thought, but like, man, that sounds like Jacob. Sounds like Jacob wrestling with God, but like, I don't know if Pharaoh is actually knowing what he's asking for there. That's a great little tidbit. We don't have time for it. Verse 33, and the Egyptians were urgent with the people and to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, hey, we're all going to die. If these guys don't get out of here, we're all going to die. Let them leave. And they leave. All right. So what we see is that Pharaoh eventually releases Israel. And on their way out, they plunder Egypt. And they take a whole bunch of stuff with them. Look with me there in verse 35 and 36. The people of Israel had, done, uh, had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold and jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have whatever they asked. I don't know if that's really like an asking. It's more like, hey, you owe me. Give me that. Because, in verse 36 ends, thus they plundered, is the way the ESV translates it, they plundered Egypt. And if you think about this, this is kind of like a weird connection, but let's go back to Exodus. I'm sorry, not Exodus. Let's go to Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 through 14. This is what the ESV says. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there. Sounds like slaves. They're going to be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. We'll see that in a second. But I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve, and afterwards they will come out with, what does your translation say? Great possessions. So you can actually see that in this action, there is a fulfillment of Genesis 15, 14 right there. That is what God told Abram 400 and what we'll find out, 430 years earlier. This is what is going to happen. Well, actually, it would have been more than 430 years. Point is, over 400 years earlier, right? 
This is what's going to happen, and this is God fulfilling His promise. Remember, the one question we are asking over and over in the Septuagint, in the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, how is relationship going to be restored? And right now, when Israel is in bondage to Egypt, how is God going to be faithful to His promise? How is He going to be able to do that? They're in slavery. Well, God told Abram, the, the guy where most of this actually really starts with, the promises come to him in Genesis chapter 12, 15, and 17. He says, no, no, they're going to be in there for 400 years. And on the way out, they're going to leave with a bunch of stuff. Yeah? So this is God fulfilling part of that promise. Word? All right. And what we see is there's about 600,000 people leave. Um, and this number is, it's kind of hard to nail down exactly how many folks. It, the numbers are generally anywhere between 1.5 million and 3 million people. That number, whenever you look in uh, Numbers chapter 1, verse 46, um, it's no longer 600,000, it's 603,000 and like 46 or something like that, like a really precise number. So we see that about 600,000 people who are men are the ones that are counted. But if you include wives, kids, and all that, it's about a million and a half to three million people. And they just, in the, they went from being slaves one day into now they're on the run out of Egypt with no long-term provisions. Keep that in mind, yeah? So God works, they leave, and what we see is that they're actually there for 430 years. You can actually see that in uh, verses 40 and 41. So God tells Abram they're going to be there for 400 years, and they're there as we count for 430. You, you see how we got there, right? Like this isn't like some crazy inconsistency in the Bible where it's lying and that there's something wrong. Like if I tell you I'll be there in 10 minutes and I show up in 12, did I lie to you? What if I show up in eight? Like, I think this is just, this is how we talk, right? So 430 years is how long Israel is in bondage there. And that also was told back in Genesis chapter 15. Yeah. All right. Then we get to the end of chapter 12. We see that the Passover is once again reiterated. Y'all are going to keep doing this. And then in chapter 13 opens up with uh, the firstborn being consecrated. And we talk about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's inaugurated. Y'all keep doing that. Even when you get in the land, keep doing it. Yeah? All right. The reason why I'm slowing down and looking at all this stuff is because it's a big deal. Right? If we are concerned with the question of how God is going to restore relationship and how we're going to overcome whatever these um, barriers are for God being able to be faithful to His covenant, and we keep seeing Him keeping promise after promise, that helps build the case that God's on the move. This is how He is doing it. Yeah? Throw onto that pile on the way out, Moses actually goes and grabs Joseph's bones. Right? One of Joseph's last things he said in chapter 50 was, hey, y'all are going to bury me here. But I remember grandfather told me, Abram, he told me that we were going to have this land over there. And that was what was told to my dad. And that's what uh, was told to his dad. I guess it would have been great-grandfather. Either way, point is, I remember that promise. Bury me now, but when you leave, take me with you. And so what does Moses do? Goes and gets them bones. I don't know what they do with them. I don't know whose dude's job it was to carry the bones, but they do it. Yeah? Genesis 50, and then we see it happening here in... Uh, Exodus 13, 19 through 20. All right. Questions about the actual Exodus. Incidentally, I mentioned this to somebody a couple weeks ago. Do you know where the word Exodus comes from? It's a Greek word. The word for the way or road is hodos. It's O-D-O-S. Think of it that way. And then there's the prefix of ek, 
or ex, which means out of, or it's the way out. Exodus is the way out of Egypt's bondage, slavery, anything, yeah. Right? So that's where the name Exodus comes from. It's the way out. Yeah? Cool. So they are on their way out. But they're not out of the woods just yet. All right. Any other questions? All right. So let's look at chapter 14. Um, in my mind, this is the most pivotal element of the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. You will see um, later prophets, and you will see even in the New Testament in Jude, uh, verse 5, Jude actually references this exact event as like the seminal way in which God saves. What will happen is the exodus from Egypt is going to become the seminal marker, mode, manner, the pattern set of how God is going to deliver. Okay, I think the crescendo of that is the crossing of the Red Sea. Here's why. If what we see in the, the text is that Pharaoh comes charging after them, he's trying to get them back or kill them, right? They were delivered from the power of Pharaoh through the, the final plague, and then they are plundering Egypt on the way out. But where did Egypt's power still project to? At least all the way to the sea. So there's a chance that they may not make it out alive. In fact, we'll talk about how they start saying that exact thing, right? So they're not out of the woods yet until they're on the other side of the river or the other side of the sea and Egypt is dead. So here's my point. Whenever we see Old Testament authors, when we see the New Testament authors, I think what is actually um, in their mind is like the most seminal element of how God saves. It's actually the crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 14. Yeah? So that's why I think it's this important. Let's look at actually what happens. Look in chapter 14 verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hiroth uh, between Migdol and the sea in front of Baal-Zephon. By the way, this whole list, we don't know where any of these individual towns are. We've got good guesses, but what we do know is the sea, right? And then you go on from there. Uh, they're going to be encamping it facing by the sea. Verse 3, For Pharaoh will say to his people, They're in the wandering land in the wilderness to shut them in. And I'm going to harden his heart. And he's going to pursue them. What? I thought we were free. I thought we were done with Pharaoh. No, no, no. I'm going to harden his heart. That's what I'm going to do. And he's going to come back after you. Where, okay, so where do you want us to go? Uh, I want you to go to the dead end. And I want you to stand there. What? So what we actually see happening here is that God actually has them avoid other overland routes. There are other ways in which they could go. If you look back in chapter 13, verses 17 and 18, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines. They could have just gone up north, up by the Mediterranean Sea. They could have gone over land. But what would have happened is, although that wasn't near, but God said they might change their minds whenever they see fighting. And if they're going to be worried about that kind of fighting that they think they're going to have to engage in, they don't stand a chance. What they need is to see me deliver them. And so God wanted to give them a miraculous deliverance. You see how this is working. I'm going to give them the pillar of fire and cloud. I'm going to protect them. I'm going to give you what you need to get there, to guide you once you were there, to give you everything you need along the way. But Pharaoh is still coming, make no mistake. And we just need to take a big step back and say, 
why? Why is God allowing this if not for demonstrating his power over the enemies of God? Like that, I, I don't know any other reason why that would be God's determination that this is what should happen. Yep. So God determines that this is what's going to happen. He gives them the pillar of fire in chapter 13 at the very end of that. Um, one other thing I'll just throw out here for you, the Red Sea translated, it actually literally means the Reed Sea. If you read really skeptical biblical um, uh, scholars, they'll tell you that, well, it's the Reed Sea, which is like a marshland. And so God didn't really deliver them through the Red Sea. He delivered them through the Reed Sea, which is literally this low-level low marshland in which I would say, JP actually pointed this out, so I'll credit him with that. He says, either way, it's miraculous. So either God delivered them through an entire sea or he drowned an entire army in 10 inches of water. Take your pick, right? I'll just say to you, like, either way, like there's a, just a translational thing that the Reed Sea, Red Sea, same thing, okay? Um, in fact, those word, the word that gets used there is what we uh, translate as the bulrushes. If you remember, where was Moses put? The bulrushes, right? This is part of that irony that we see coming to fruition here. All right, so God hardens Pharaoh's heart. We've already talked about that. He's coming after them. Egypt is going to pursue them and he's going to corner them. And they know it. Israel knows it. Read with me real quick. Let's pick it up in verse 10 of chapter 14. When Pharaoh drew near, so close enough for them to see and to know this is happening... The people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Like, okay, cool. So they're crying out to God. This is what we should anticipate. How's God going to deliver? What do they say? Verse 11. They said to Moses. Okay, hang on. They're crying out to the Lord, but now they're talking to Moses. And this is what they actually say. Uh, is it because there are no good graves in Egypt? There weren't enough shallow graves in Egypt to bury us all that you brought us all the way out here to die? You see what's happening? What have you done to us bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not exactly what we said to you while we were in Egypt? Hey, let's just, let's just stay here. We're good. Like, yeah, I know we're servants. I know that we're in slavery. But like, this is better than dying out in the wilderness. And they're reminding Moses, we told you this, dude. We're all about to die. And here's my point. The seeds of grumbling are evident right away. Whenever we get to Numbers in chapter 11, do you know how many days into their journey after all of this deliverance, after spending a year at Mount Sinai, after seeing God work, after seeing His glory fill the tabernacle, after seeing the manna and the water, after all these miraculous events, do you know how long they last before this exact thing happens again? Anybody want to take a stab? Close. Three days. They make it three days. The pattern is going to be God's going to deliver them in this miraculous way and they're going to complain. And in case you think that you're better than they are, you're not. Okay? You're just not. Neither am I. So, before we look down our nose at them, let's just recognize that this is a thing that, that has to do with sin. Right? This willful ignorance of just not wanting to be thankful to God for these things. Alright, so... There's this grumbling that happens, and then there's this miraculous deliverance and the judgment from the water. You can look there in chapter 14 from 15 through the end of the chapter, but you know the story at this point. Right? Moses holds up his stick. There's this huge like alleyway opens. The water in the Hebrew, it piles up by the breath of God's nostrils. He's blowing it out, and there's just this dry lane cut. 
and the pillar of fire and cloud goes back behind Israel, kind of hedges them in, and they have like a full day to cross. And as they cross, the pillar of cloud and the fire comes up again, and the lane's still open, and so Egypt comes crashing down in on them, and they get out there in the middle, and guess what? Then comes the water, and they all die. Right? That's what happens. That's the whole story. However, that's not the end of the story. Does anybody know what happens in chapter 15? Just look over at the subheadings of your chapter. What does yours say? The Song of Moses. What is yours, Joanne? The Song of the Redeemed. The Song of Deliverance. The Song of the Sea. The Song of Moses. There's all sorts of titles for this. Here's the point. After they see this miraculous deliverance, Israel sings their first corporate worship song. I think you can see a pattern there of when we see and we fear and we recognize our need and we call out to God. Yeah, they kind of did it the wrong way. They were grumbling. They were complaining. God delivers them miraculously. And then what do they do? They worship. I think that should be our pattern as well. Is when we recognize our need, we see God deliver, we see God provide, we worship. And this is the first corporate worship song you see in all of Scripture. All right. That is the pivotal moment that I think that later biblical authors are going to point back to and say this is where God really saved. Questions, comments? All right. So I'm going to throw all this up there. I'm going to let you write this down. I don't normally do this, but I'm going to give you an outline of everything else that happens in the rest of Exodus. So basically, we just picked up at the end of the Song of Moses in chapter 15, verse 22, and then we go all the way through the end of chapter 40. That is everything else that happens in uh, Exodus. And like you said before, we have all these notes online. You can catch them there. But let me highlight a couple of things. We're going to see Israel travel to Mount Sinai. On the way out there, they're going to run into this cat named Jethro exactly like Moses did after he left Egypt. Go listen to last week. And when they are there, they're eventually going to get to this place called Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, and they're going to have this covenant ceremony where God is going to cut a covenant with Israel, just like Moses had with his marriage ceremony with Zephora, right? You see these mirroring beats happen beat for beat. In fact, God tells Moses in Exodus 3, hey, whenever y'all get on the other side of this sea on the way back through, come back to this mountain. And then we basically stay at Mount Sinai for a year. If you did not know, I'll explain it even a little more detail here in a little bit, but everything from Exodus 19 all the way through the end of Exodus, all the way through the totality of Leviticus and the first 10 chapters of Numbers, that's the same one-year period. Okay, They're just hanging out at Mount Sinai, essentially. We'll talk about that in a bit. But what happens along the way is that the covenant's going to be confirmed there in chapter 24. They're going to get all these instructions about how to build the tabernacle, which is the tent of meeting, this place where God's going to dwell with them. The Ark of the Covenant's going to be created, and they're going to put it in there, and there's going to be this whole process. But what's the problem? Does anything stand out in that list of what happens in the rest of Exodus that's like, hey, uh, this one thing's not like the rest? Does anything else stand out to you there? What about chapters 32 through 34? We're going to see that Moses makes at least seven, possibly eight trips up and down Mount Sinai to go get a word from God, comes and delivers it to the people, goes back up, kind of does this back and forth. And on one of those trips, he's up there for 40 days. And what does Israel do whenever Moses is hanging around there for too long? What do they do? They make a golden calf. And now we've got a problem. 
that's what we're going to spend some time talking about here in just a bit. And then at the very end of Exodus, there's going to be the instructions given again, essentially, for the tabernacle. Uh, these two cats, Bezalel and Oholiab, are these two cats who are given um, God's Spirit. He rushes upon them, um, and they are given the Holy Spirit to be able to, like, do embroidery and, like, gemsmithing, like gold. I mean, like, it's crazy. And then they go and gather all these other dudes who are craftsmen and like they're in charge of these cats, right? So that's what happens at the last of last five, six chapters of Exodus. Cool? If you want more detail about this, catch it later because we're flying by it. All right. What I want to do now is I want to talk about the covenant that God actually cuts with Israel at Mount Sinai. So number one, we see there that there is this complaining that begins like three days into this journey. Let's pick it up there in uh, Exodus chapter 15. I told you earlier that in Numbers they made it three days. Guess what? They make it three days this time. Look at chapter 15, verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. And they went how many days? Three days. Hey, Moses, uh, you know how you told us to like put our belts on and our sandals, and you told us explicitly to not get any water? Uh, we've done been out. We don't have any water. Okay, cool. Let's go to this place over here named Mara. There's some water there. Yeah, it's, it's no good. No good. Can't do it. And so God makes the water sweet, and eventually he gives them manna. He's providing miraculously for them in chapters 15, 16, and 17. Um, in fact, there's a whole lot of uh, interplay between chapter 17 and the water from the rock here in Exodus and what happens later in Exodus, I'm sorry, Numbers chapter 20, whenever Moses is hitting the rock there, and that's what gets Moses disqualified from being able to go into the land. There's a whole lot of interplay between those two. We don't have time for that. If we do, ask me later, I'll tell you all about it. Point is, they start complaining immediately. <laughs> They're three days away from singing the first worship song, and now they're dragging their feet because they don't have any water. A little bit of ironic twist there, right? They were completely surrounded by water whenever they were going through the Red Sea, and now they don't have any. And the irony also is like, you think God can't give you water? Did you see what he did with the last bunch of water y'all were around? Like, you think he's not going to do that? So God provides... And then there's this really weird scene that happens. Let's look in chapter 17. I do want to focus on this just for a bit. Look at chapter 17, verse 8. We're going to meet a new guy. Then a lim, uh, um, um, Amalek, sorry, Amalek. He is the leader of the Amalekites. You'll see him pop up in Numbers. The first battle that gets fought in Numbers is against the Amalekites. Amalek, he, come, uh, he came and he fought with Israel at Rephidim. And so Moses said to... Joshua. This is the first time he really shows up in like a prominent way. He says to Joshua, we're going to find out he's the son of Nun, choose, us for, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. And so Moses picks on this one dude named Joshua, says, hey, go fight this battle for us. And Joshua is going to do what he does. I don't know what kind of skill he has. I don't know if the Lord just gifted him supernaturally. I don't know if he was trained in Egypt. Don't know. We really don't know much about Joshua but we know he wins. But what's important is how he wins. What's going on in this battle in chapter 17, verses 8, all the way through verse 16, is actually foreshadowing, almost beat for beat, what's going to happen in the book of Joshua. Let me explain it to you. So go get Joshua, get us some boys, get together. Y'all got to go fight. 
Tomorrow, I, this is Moses, I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God, the same one with the water, you know, Charlton Heston, you know. I'm going to stand up there with Moses, uh, I'm sorry, with the staff in my hand. And so Joshua did as Moses told him, and he fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and her went up on top of the hill. Okay, who's her? Just some dude, right? He's just, he really is just some dude. Until you start thinking about who he is. And when you start digging into his lineage, you have A, Moses, who is the prophet. You have Aaron, who is the priest. And you have her, who is not a king, but you know what tribe he's from? Judah. So you have God's armies out there fighting on the field. But is that really where the fight's happening? You've got the prophet, the priest, and the king who are up here on the hill. And what's happening is as Moses has his hands up holding the staff, as long as his arms are up there, they're winning. But whenever homeboy starts getting tired, they start losing. And so Aaron comes and props him up. And so does her, the other guy, comes up and props him up. And it's only through God's deliverance are they able to win any battle. Are you tracking with that? Like this is the story of Joshua. Joshua gets into the land scouts it out and then they're like okay here we go go time they cross the jordan and they run into like the best defended city that they have around jericho and like god's like oh man i don't know what we're gonna do um you got a band go get the boys and some trumpets and line up that's what we're gonna do but you see how this works like it's only through god's deliverance and so this is really foreshadowing everything that's going to happen in numbers now we got some ground to cover before we get there, but that's what's going to happen. I'm not numbers, Joshua. All right, so they eventually find victory there in chapter 17. They run into Jethro in chapter 18. And then in 19, they meet with God at Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. Go back to chapter 3 of Exodus and you'll see the interaction with the burning bush. Same place. God says, on your way back, come back here. Boom, here they are, right? So what happens when they get there? Let's pick it up in... Uh, look at chapter 19, verses 12 through 14. <clears throat> and this is God speaking to Moses. And you shall set limits for the people all around, speaking about Mount Sinai, saying, Take care, do not go up the mountain or touch even the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain is going to get what? Put to death. Don't even come close to this joker. You come up on this mountain, you will die. And then what Israel goes is like, yeah, cool, fine. Uh, I'm never going up there. Moses, you have to go. And so Moses has got to make seven or eight trips up, to, up this mountain. And a couple of times he takes Aaron with him, right? So what happens is Israel is going to go meet with God at Mount Sinai. He's going to literally have like this cloud that's going to be hovering over the mountain. And like God's presence is clearly there and they can't go up. Huh? Come now. Israel can't get up there. If they do, they will die. If they are in God's presence, they will die, right? You see some of these foundational stones being laid about how they're going to relate to God. So eventually Aaron is going to be brought up there as a priest. And so you have the prophet who is Moses, who is receiving a word from God and he is giving it to the people. And one of the words that he gets is, hey, go get your brother Aaron. He's now going to be the one who mediates between me and the people. So he's no longer just going to be speaking the word. He's the one who's going to be actually making sure that we make the sacrifices so that relationship between God's people and God can be restored come now. Do you see the connections of how the entire first five books of the Bible are about answering this question of how is a relationship going to be restored? 
go get Aaron. Yeah? There's a right way to have a relationship with God, and he's about to start telling them all about it. Yep. So, this is basically the pattern that unfolds for the next 20 chapters. This is basically it. This is a gross oversimplification, but this is the best I can do. God is going to go talk with Moses, and he's going to give him the covenant. Here's what I want you to tell him. Let's start off with these 10 rules. The 10 dovar, 10 things, the 10 words. It's the 10 commandments, right? Start with that, and then we'll go from there. He gets that, and he goes down. They're like, yeah, we, we're, all, we're good with that, right? Moses goes, and he delivers it to Israel, and they go, yeah, that's cool. And then Moses goes back up the hill and gets some more, and he comes back. He does that like seven times, at least seven, right? Um, in fact, this is where I have the note. He makes at least seven trips, eight maybe, depending on how you count. Point is, he gets up and down a whole lot, right? That is what happens in Exodus, what we see happening in Leviticus is also more content kind of explaining. Some of it is from what happens on Mount Sinai. Some of it is God speaking to Moses from the tent of meeting. Um, but this is what the point is. There are, is a correct way for you to relate with God, and you don't get to set the terms. God does. But he tells you the terms, right? He tells you exactly what's going to happen. Guys, don't come up this mountain or I will kill you. You will die. So y'all need to put some rocks up or something. Fence this joker off. Don't come up here. Right? And you're even going to see that in Numbers. Do you know who camps around the tabernacle? Like literally the tribe that is encircling the tabernacle? Do y'all know which one it is? Say again. The Levites. The Levites. The Levites aren't the priests. They are just like the guardians of the tabernacle. They serve in the tabernacle. There's, there's an, an ironic group that are actually priests. But the Levites, they surround the tabernacle. Why? In case some fool from Simeon comes rolling through and wants to walk into the tabernacle instead of him being killed by God and there being this other judgment, you know what those Levites would do? They would kill him. They'd stop him. If not, they'd kill him. So that wouldn't happen. And this whole thing is happening on Mount Sinai in like a much larger scale because we ain't got the tabernacle yet. We will. But what, what is true about what happens at the top of the Mount Sinai is going to be true about what happens down in the tabernacle and eventually the temple. Yeah? All right, questions about this stuff so far? I know I moved from really like verse by verse concrete, this stuff happens there. And we kind of started moving towards a little more abstract. Let's make it a little more abstract. Okay, I want to tell us about like what is going on here in... What is it that we're supposed to think of this section of Scripture? Number one, this is when Israel was there for about a year. Even through their failure, even through them accepting the covenant and then failing and then having to be restored, like they're there for about a year. So in this section, this is all of Exodus and the rest of it from here, all of Leviticus and basically the first 10 chapters of Numbers. If you've never made that connection, that's crazy. When you start thinking about this, what is God doing? He's cutting a covenant with his bride, right? This is mirroring what happened with Moses whenever he got on the other side of the sea and he runs into the land of Midian and he runs into this well where there's these seven daughters of the priest of Midian and one of them's name is Zephora and he gets married to her. He, there's a covenant that is cut with his bride. That's what God is doing with Israel. I will be your God. This is what I'm requiring of you. Because if you don't do it the right way, you get up the hill, you're going to die. Right? 
That is what is happening in this big chunk. So if we're looking at Exodus all the way through, big chunks of numbers also has a lot of wall in it. That's just God saying, this is how you're to relate to me. Because I'm trying to answer this question the whole time. How is relationship going to be restored? Let me tell you. Yeah? Does that make sense? So what's going on with this covenant? Remember, we cut a covenant. The karath is the word in Hebrew. You cut a covenant. That's what's going on, that there's bloodshed there. And what that is really pointing to is that there is this extension of the covenant made to Abram in Genesis 12, 15, and 17, and now it's being given to all of Israel. It's no longer just this one family and really like three dudes, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, where it just kind of gets extended to the, to the promised son from there, right? Now it's opened up to all of Jacob's kids, which is what the plan was all along, yes, but this is God being faithful to that promise to show how his relationship is going to be restored through my covenantal faithfulness only, ever, always, right? And so he's extending that out because it's answering the question, how is the relationship going to be restored? Yeah? All right, here's the thing. Let's look in Exodus chapter 19 and let's pick it up in verses 5 through 6. What's the point of all this? Why is God trying to cut a covenant? What is it that he's trying to accomplish? Here it is. Look at verse uh, 4. Let's pick it up at verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself here on this mountain. You've seen it. Y'all agree? Yeah. Verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession. King James. What does it translate that as? Peculiar. In fact, that's the same word that is ringing in Peter's ears whenever he's writing 1 Peter chapter 2. It says that we are a peculiar people. We are a people of his own possession. We are to be a kingdom of priests. In fact, he's beat for beat picking up the promise. You're going to be a treasured possession of peculiar people among all the peoples, for the earth is mine. Like I could pick anybody, but I picked you. And what he says there in verse 6, and you're going to be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What Peter does in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9, 10, and 11 is what he is doing. No, is it 9, 10, 11? We'll look it up here in a second. What Peter is doing in that section, he is saying this was language that was only ever used for Israel. And he says, that's you. This is language that was only ever used to describe God's specific people that, uh, that he had called, yeah, it's 1 Peter chapter 1, starting verse 13, sorry. Um, and he's applying it to Christians now. He says, you're going to be a kingdom of priests. Why? Why are they to be a kingdom of priests? And the reason for that is what's going to flesh out over the next 20 chapters, the rest of Leviticus, and what happens with the rest of the law portions in Numbers and in Deuteronomy they are going to be told how they are going to set the example for justice, holiness, generosity, how they are to live among the people who are not God's chosen people, but they are to be an example, and God has to show them how to do that. Yes, we are the recipients of that, just so you know. Like, that's why this is important. Because what Peter says in 1 Peter 1 is, that's you now. That wasn't just Israel. That's you. You are now part of the kingdom of priests. You are a royal nation. You are the one that is a treasured possession of mine. Yeah? Because we are the fulfillment of what Israel was supposed to be. But let's be really clear. We fail just like they do. And in fact, 
They agree to keep the covenant and then immediately fail. Let's look real quick in chapter 24, verse 8. Skip ahead, chapter 24. God said to Moses, come on up here, get Aaron. We got some stuff to talk about. Here's what I want you to do. Give them all the law. Ask them if they're, if they're in on this. Pick it up there in verse 8. Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant and the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And the whole thing is in verse 7, all that the Lord has spoken, that's what we're going to do. They keep the covenant. Moses goes up and down the mountain a couple more times. And on one particular occasion, he's up there for 40 days. And then they're like, ah, this dude's not coming back. This whole God thing isn't, isn't working out. Hey, Aaron, can we get all that gold that we took from the people of Egypt on the way out? Let's get us a calf. And when you look in chapters 32 through 34, what's going on is Israel is breaking the first two of the commandments. Don't have any other gods. Don't have any idols. You don't need them. There's like smoke and thunder and lightning and Moses is up there. You know he is because he's coming down and his face is like bright. You can't even look at the man. Something crazy is going on up there. You know I'm for real. There's no need for an idol. And that's exactly what they run to. Yeah? And so there's this really dour moment in the middle of the last half of Exodus, but there is this restoration that Israel will undergo, that they will eventually be restored. Um, you're going to see that happening uh, later in chapter 28, is it, I think? See, now you got me lying because I didn't write this part down. Later on, the, the covenant is confirmed again. They're restored. They start building the tabernacle. Everything's good, yeah? But... Here's the deal. Let's look at the very end of Exodus. They're restored. They make the tabernacle. It's erected in chapter 40. And everything's ready to go. Chapter 40, and I've talked about this uh, in the third week whenever I did the video on YouTube of talking about the structure of the Pentateuch. I mentioned this here, and let's talk about it. Verse 34 of chapter 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Like, this is what we're working towards. Yes, God is here. And Moses was not able to enter into it. What? Hang on. I thought the whole point was that you were going to be dwelling with us. And God's like, yeah, but we still got a problem. You remember that calf? We've got to atone for that. And what unfurls, look at chapter 1 of Leviticus, verse 1. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from where? From inside the tent of meeting we got to go all the way through Leviticus for us to be able to see how relationship can be restored. There are rules. This is how it's going to happen. I know everyone hates reading Leviticus, but here's why it's important. If you make it all the way through Leviticus and then you hit numbers, this is what we are greeted with.